Good morning to you, Chapel, and happy Easter. It is a great pleasure to get to celebrate alongside of you all today as we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we celebrate that resurrection today, we will find ourselves in another account of the resurrection, in the Gospel of John, as we read of Jesus' appearance specifically to his disciple, Thomas. As we begin our time together then, let us read from our text, that is John 20, beginning in verse 24 and reading through 31. If you are able, I encourage you to stand at home out of the reverence of the word of God. John 20, beginning in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of our time, this is obviously far from ideal when it comes to what we'd envisioned to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It seems not all that long ago that, that all of us were able to go about our regular lives and go out and actually enjoy things outside of our home. And then suddenly overnight, this pandemic changed everything we're able to do. To the point where it has forced all of us this morning to remain home even on this tremendous occasion. In response to this scary crisis our nation has faced, our, our nation and many of us included have sought to try to find comfort, try to find normalcy, and finding those, those figures of authority, those, those experts that are able to offer clear understanding, clear words of instruction, and, and ideally those authority figures that are able to assure us that things will get better soon. But of course, we have quickly come to understand that despite the endless number of people that seem to insert themselves in those places of authority, the fact is no one can bring about a quick ending to this, at least not yet. And so instead of finding comfort in, in one great hero in this crisis, we found ourselves simply relying on one another and doing the little things that we can do. And so we get up every day and we do those things that we can do and we stay home as much as we can and we make those sacrifices that we're able to and we do so all the while hoping that eventually as a result of us just doing those little things and as a result of the work of the many men and women who are serving, we hope that eventually this crisis will be passed. It is a scary time, but of course, I think most of us still trust and hope that it will be over in the relatively near future. That is our prayer. As we come to our text this morning, though, 
we are reminded that as grim of a situation as we face now, it is, it is far from the level of, of hopelessness that was on display on that original Good Friday. As dark as these days are, they are by no means any darker or any near as dark as the days that the disciples faced following the crucifixion of their Savior. As we look at our story today, specifically through the eyes of Thomas, we experience that grief. We experience his doubt, and we see that which suddenly brought a miraculous change. We see Thomas confronted with with truly the one authority figure that really could change everything, the one figure that, that could bring life, that could bring hope, that could bring peace. And as we examine that authority and see the glorious response of Thomas as he professes faith in that Savior, we are going to remind of the fact that as believers, we do have a living hope that can never be touched. Regardless of whatever pandemics might strike, we have a hope that is unchanging. And so my hope as we consider this text this morning is that we might be reminded of that hope, but of course we can only appreciate the hope if first we, we stare the hopelessness of Good Friday in the face. And then and only then can we appreciate the joy of the authority of Christ and the gift that that authority brings to us. With that being said, let me open us up in a word of prayer and we'll start digging into this glorious sequence of events. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you today, we come ready to celebrate the most glorious event in the history of creation. The resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And truly there's nothing more joyful than that historical event. But of course, God, as we come to celebrate it today, we come in the midst of a very trying time in our nation and throughout our world. We are living in the midst of a crisis that has certainly caused many individuals to question whether or not there is joy in this life. It has caused many people to question their futures as we find ourselves in the midst of, of great levels of uncertainty, God. God, I know there are many people throughout our country and throughout our world that have already lost loved ones to the coronavirus. Many individuals within our body and throughout our nation that have lost jobs, that have lost precious, needed income. And so, God, they sit on this Easter morning, God, in desperate need of hope, in desperate need of comfort, God. Our prayer this morning is that as we consider the text before us, we might be reminded of the fact that there is hope even in these dark times, God. There is joy even in these seemingly joyless hours. But it is only to be found in our one perfect authority, Jesus Christ. Cause us to read the story this morning, God, with new eyes. For those who are watching this and listening in this morning, God, who perhaps have never heard of the story of Jesus Christ, might they hear it this morning and rejoice knowing that there is hope, but that it is found purely in the gospel. And for those of us who have already placed our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, might again this be a reminder to us of the glorious truth that we get to proclaim, God. Might we remember that even in these times of chaos, there is peace because Jesus Christ has declared peace. Bless our time this morning, God, we pray. All in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, obviously, on a morning like this, we want to jump to the end of the story. We desire to get to that glorious resurrection. But before we can appreciate that glory and that joy, we must first appreciate the sheer level of hopelessness that is faced at the beginning of our text. It is the hopelessness that is found in the midst of a dead Messiah, and it was that 
which was specifically experienced by the disciple Thomas. Again, picking up the story in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, we see that experience of Thomas. For we see Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them, that is, the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Many of us are perhaps familiar with Thomas, purely through the popular title he's given, Doubting Thomas. That is because of these verses. For as we see in these verses, Thomas does in fact doubt the reality of the resurrection, even though the other disciples had already seen Jesus a few days before this point. It is easy to write Thomas off as as a sort of failure of a disciple. It's easy to question the lack of belief he had. And yet it is important if we're really to appreciate the gravity of of Thomas' situation that we understand and remember that that not long before this moment, Thomas was, was amongst those that were devout to Jesus Christ. He was a loyal disciple. We are not given a lot of detail of Thomas's life, but we do see one glimpse of his devotion in another famous account in the Gospel of John, back in John chapter 11. In John 11, we see the story of the raising of Lazarus. In the middle of that story in John 11, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how he desires to go see their friend Lazarus, even though Lazarus has just died. And having explained that to him, we pick the story up in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. We read that now Jesus had spoken of his death, that is Lazarus' death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. In this brief verse, we see a glimpse of that devotion that Thomas himself had, for he did not understand the fact that Lazarus was about to be raised. He, he did not understand why Jesus was insisting upon going to see him, especially since... Lazarus' body laid in a particularly dangerous place close to Jerusalem. Thomas understood that by traveling that distance that Jesus was putting his own life and the lives of the disciples at risk. And yet even though Thomas could not understand why Jesus wanted to do this, even though Thomas fully believed that it would put his own life at risk, we see Thomas still incredibly willing to go, even though he believes it might lead to his own death. And so he encourages the other disciples to join him. In this brief moment, we see Thomas very much in a similar light to the way we oftentimes see Peter. Peter was that self-assured disciple who who is so confident in his faith and so confident that he would always remain true to Jesus. Thomas, it seems, was very similar. He was devoted. And for good reason. Because Thomas, like the other disciples, would have seen Jesus perform incredible miracles. Like the other disciples, Thomas would have heard Jesus speak with that divine authority a teaching that no one had ever heard before. And like the other disciples, Thomas would have been there to walk alongside Jesus in that glorious triumphal entry into their holy city of Jerusalem, in that week of Passover. And and just as everyone else would have assumed, Thomas no doubt would have believed that at that point of triumphal entry, the kingdom surely would arrive. 
Surely that would be the moment that Jesus would take his seat upon the throne. Surely that would be the moment when Jesus is triumphant. Surely that would be the moment that the people of God had waited for for centuries. And it's hard to to wrap our minds around the level of excitement that those disciples, Thomas included, must have felt in those final days. And then, in just a course of a few days, and really in the course of a few hours, all of that is lost. All of that excitement, all of that hope, all that expectation is crushed. For as many of you already know the story, on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus suddenly tells his disciples that that one of you will betray me. One of you who has walked alongside me and seen my miracles, heard my teaching, you will betray us. Thomas, like the other disciples, would have been shocked. Thomas would have been there to witness the, the agony of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thomas would have been there to witness as his friend Judas brings the enemies, the the religious leaders to Jesus Christ and betrays him, hands him over. Thomas would have been with the other disciples as they fled for their lives. And Thomas, like the other disciples, would have been heard with great horror that Jesus Christ, their, their beloved Messiah, had been executed in the most painful, shameful, humiliating ways. Jesus was defeated. And so Thomas, just like everyone else, fully believed that was it. And so as we come back into the text in verse 24, even though the other disciples claim to have seen Jesus, Thomas knows that can't happen. People don't come back from that. No, Thomas is dead set in his doubt. For he understands the horrific occurrences that have unfolded the last few days. He understands that one of his closest friends has betrayed the disciples. He understands that the Messiah is dead and as such he understands that there is no hope for anyone. See again, as we read this text of of Thomas, it is so easy to simplify to some, some purely intellectual doubt. As if Thomas just needed a few logical proofs thrown his way. As if the disciples should have just had a more effective argument for the reality of the resurrection. But just as it is the case With people today, the struggle of Thomas was far more than just an intellectual struggle. The struggle of Thomas was tied to to this inner emotional turmoil. It was tied, no doubt, to a questioning of of the plan of God. It was tied to a questioning of, of everything Thomas had come to believe. For while Thomas could not have perhaps put it in the same words of Paul, he would have understood exactly what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 19, Paul says this regarding those who reject the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Thomas doubts. Thomas is struggling for good reason. For Thomas knows that that if Jesus is dead, well, then that means the Messiah has lost. If the Messiah is lost, then that means that that promised restoration between the people of God and God is gone. And if all hopes for restoration is gone, well, then that means that all we have is this life. 
And that is a sad, pathetic life to lead. For Thomas, like the other disciples, had given up everything. And if they had done that for absolutely nothing, well then what's, what's the point? Thomas understood that a dead Messiah offers zero hope, zero encouragement. And quite frankly, as such, Thomas really represents all of humanity. For that is the grim reality that every single person faces today. That is to say, if, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if he simply taught a few good things and, and performed a few miracles but then died, well, then we are still hopeless and all we have is this life. And if all we have is this life, well, then, well, this recent pandemic has, has shown us how, how troubling that would be, doesn't it? For this pandemic has shown us how fragile this life is. For it has shown us regardless of, of our financial success, regardless of, of how healthy we might be, regardless of what grand plans we have in our future, it can all be stripped away from us in the blink of an eye. Let's face it, it wasn't that long ago when, when this coronavirus was some mystery disease in some far-off province of China that none of us had ever really heard of before. Many of us no doubt said, well, that's their problem. It's a shame the Chinese are dealing with that, but, you know, what are you going to do? Many of us scoffed at the people that spoke of, of the possible spread across the world. Many of us, myself included, continue to question whether or not this really was a danger, even when American figures began to warn us about it. And so then many of us were shocked to see how quickly it shut our nation down. Many of us, even this morning, now suffer loss of job as a result of it. We, we lost our financial comfort. Many of us understandably fear our own physical health. For we hear of the stories of the news of, of people succumbing to this disease. We see the numbers continue to, to go up and up and up of people who contract the disease, people who die from the disease. And while we hope for, for an end to come soon, we recognize we are completely out of control in the situation. There's nothing that can be done. We have been shown that which really every generation has known before us. That is the fact that life is fleeting. Life is fragile. And if all we have to hope for is that which we hold on to this life, well, it's all dust. It will be gone in the blink of an eye. And truly all hope is dead with it. That is the reality that Thomas faced. That is the hopelessness of all of us if Jesus is dead. And so Thomas despite the encouragement of his friends, the disciples, despite the fact that they claim to have seen Jesus, Thomas is determined to remain in his despair. For he cannot possibly imagine anything that could possibly bring an end to this doubt. And then suddenly, suddenly something happens. Suddenly this doubting Thomas' mind is, is changed miraculously. Suddenly he has hope. Suddenly he has comfort. And the reason for that, of course, is not simply in the appearance of, of another disciple's testimony, but it's in the appearance and the authority of his resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Picking it back up, as we move to our second point on that authority of a resurrected king, we read in verses 26 through 27. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. 
And he said to Thomas, reach here with your fingers. See my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. As Thomas sat in a room, still afraid of the Jewish authorities that no doubt were a threat to their physical lives, suddenly he is joined with Jesus Christ. Suddenly, the picture unfolds of the story that that looks identical to that which unfolded for the disciples a week before in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. For in the middle of this locked room, Jesus Christ appears, and he doesn't just appear with, with any regular greeting. He appears and declares, peace be with you. Jesus offers this proclamation of great authority. Now this greeting, at at first glance, might seem relatively innocent. For to tell someone, peace be with you, was a greeting that was extremely common amongst the Jewish people. In fact, even today, this concept of of greeting people with peace is extremely common throughout many cultures of the world. It is very similar to us wishing one another, good morning, I hope you're doing well. For the Jews, this greeting spoke of the Old Testament concept of of shalom, of of peace, of of being complete. It spoke of a longing that they had to return to God, a longing they had to return to that that wholeness that was lost in the fall. And so many Jews would have entered into any room and, and offered that same greeting day in and day out. But of course, these words take on a very different meaning when they come up on the lips of Jesus Christ, don't they? For when Jesus comes into the room and says, peace be with you, he's not offering a greeting, he's he's giving a gift. And he's saying, peace is here, I give you peace. If you're a disciple like Thomas, when you hear the word of peace coming from the, the lips of Christ, your mind, no doubt, goes back to another teaching of Christ. If you can turn with me, look back at John 14 and you see another famous example where Jesus speaks of this coming peace. In the Gospel of John in chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his his impending crucifixion and he's speaking to them on the fact that he will be gone soon. Understandably, the disciples are troubled deeply by this news. But to help calm his disciples, Jesus offers these words of promise. In John chapter 14, picking it up in verse 25, we read, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Prior to his crucifixion, then Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you orphans, I will not leave you in fear, I will leave you with a helper, and I will leave you with peace. Peace. Again, this word brings with it a a great deal of of promise and comfort, and the question, of course, is tied to, the question, of course, is, what does this peace mean? Well, again, if you're a disciple, and more importantly, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you understand this is no empty greeting. This is no empty promise. For that peace is is that which the people of God had longed for for generations. 
But the prophets made it clear that the peace could only come with, with that one special figure of authority, with the one true king, with the Messiah. Many of you are familiar with the prophet Isaiah, and he himself spoke of the peace that the Messiah would bring. Perhaps most famously back in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, we read this prophecy. The prophet says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The people of God for long had looked for peace and they understood it could only come in the Messiah. They understood that that everlasting peace could only come from him, from his work, from, from his everlasting promise. And so it is no small detail then that when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, it is this peace that I bring you. It is this peace that I will leave you. You can understand then the great excitement that must have come with that word of Jesus Christ spoken to the disciples in John 20 when he enters into the room and says, peace. I've done it. I have fulfilled all promises. I fulfilled all righteousness. Your long-awaited gift of peace is here. It's a bold claim, isn't it? And again, just consider the circumstances in which Jesus is, is proclaiming this authoritative peace. I mean, yes, it is marvelous that Jesus is here, but the disciples are still locked in a room afraid for their lives. For regardless of what Jesus says in this moment, the moment that the disciples walk out of the room, they still have to face those Jewish authorities. They're still in power. They still will hate the disciples. Even more than that, where, where are these disciples living? In the Roman Empire. Well, it's not as if the Roman Empire is just going to roll over for the disciples because they say, hey, that Jew you crucified turned out to be God. They're not going to do that. No, of course the Roman Empire will despise Christianity. And so for Jesus to speak peace in the middle of, of a world that would respond with great hatred to Christianity, well, that is incredibly bold. In fact, the boldness does not end at that original moment for throughout the, the history of the church, this word of peace, this declaration of peace has been read in the midst of peaceless situations, hasn't it? For generations of Christians read this word in the midst of a Roman Empire that hated them. Christians read this word under the rule of, of leaders like Diocletian who, who sought out to completely eradicate the world of all Christians. For generations, Christians read this word of Christ in the midst of a dying war, uh, world full of, full of war, full of disease. And of course, we come to our world today and we see, well, not much has changed. For as I read this great word of Christ, peace, this morning, I read it as you're all trapped in your homes because of a pandemic that we seemingly can't stop. And yet we say peace? Peace, Jesus, really? That's a bold proclamation. And of course, one must ask, by what authority could Christ possibly claim this gift? By what authority could Christ possibly claim to be the king in the midst of such turmoil? 
Well, of course, we see that authority. We see the proof. Not simply in the words of Jesus, but, but in the physical presence of Jesus. The proof of, of his ability to authoritatively claim peace is the proof of the bodily resurrection. For as he says these words, peace be with you, again in verse 27, he immediately said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hand. Reach here with your hand. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now Jesus here, as we'll speak to in a moment, is giving a special word of encouragement to Thomas, but he does the same thing to the earlier disciples in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 24. He looks specifically, points specifically to that physical proof, that physical bodily resurrection. And the question is why? Why is that bodily resurrection so important? What, what does a physical resurrection prove? Well, it proves quite a few things, actually. First and foremost, the physical resurrection validates Christ's own teaching. For as you read throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus very clearly predicted his physical resurrection. In the Gospel of John, as early as John chapter 2, Jesus is saying, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his physical body. Destroy this and I will be raised again. In a similar way, you can read in other Gospel contexts as Jesus speaks to this future physical resurrection. In Matthew chapter 16, we read these words in verse 21. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Shortly after that, in Matthew 17, verse 30 and 31, or Matthew 17, we read the same idea as, as Jesus tells his disciples in verse 22. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Time and time again, Jesus had spoken very clearly to his physical resurrection. True, the disciples did not fully understand the promise, but the promises are there. And so if Jesus failed to be raised physically, if he simply came back as some spiritual form, well, he's a failure. He's done nothing. But he is here. And thus his own teachings are, are confirmed. His authority is confirmed in himself. Even more importantly, however, this physical resurrection also proves the, the father's vindication of his son. You read Paul speak of that vindication in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, towards the very end of this great sermon on Mars Hill, Paul offers these words in Acts chapter 17, picking it up in verse 30. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection, Paul says, is essential to that proclamation of the gospel. It is essential because it proves that, that the Father is indeed well pleased by the Son, that the Father has accepted the sacrifice that has been offered on our behalf. Without the bodily resurrection, there is no vindication. Without the bodily resurrection, there is not that sense of satisfaction on behalf of the Father. But with the resurrection, it is there. And as a result, not only are Christ's own teachings fulfilled, 
Not only is the father's wrath satisfied and the father is vindicated, but vindicates the son, but ultimately the bodily resurrection proves our redemption. It proves that Jesus was successful to do everything that, that the word of God promised he would accomplish. For it is in his bodily resurrection that, that all of us are able to find our own justification. The New Testament is, is full of this language. Consider, for instance, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, For if we have become united, that is, believers become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves for sin, to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Because of that bodily resurrection, we are united to Christ. Because of that bodily resurrection, we are justified, we are redeemed. Speaking to the passage that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, having spoken of the hopelessness that is found in a dead Messiah, Paul then says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And he goes on to argue that because of the resurrection, we have a hope, we have the authority in Jesus Christ that we so desperately needed. The physical resurrection of Christ then is is not just some party trick that Jesus is pulling out to impress his friends. No, the bodily resurrection is the proof that he has the authority to proclaim the peace that he gives. And so as Jesus walks into this room, he is not walking into it simply as as another Lazarus who himself was raised by Jesus. No, he is entering into the room as the resurrected Son of God, as the King of all creation. He is entering into that room victorious with the authority that can only belong to God himself. One can only imagine the feeling that must have come over all the disciples yet again at that moment. I mean, imagine, while those disciples had, had a basic understanding of Christ before the crucifixion, it is clear that they had not quite yet understood everything. And yet in this moment, everything is clicking. And suddenly it seems for the first time the disciples are, are beginning to understand that as, as they sit in the presence of Jesus, they are sitting in the presence of the almighty God of creation. If you're Thomas, how, how do you feel in this moment? If you're cynical, it might be easy to assume Thomas must feel pretty embarrassed, right? I mean, here you were in Thomas's shoes. Here you were doubting the, the witness of your friends, the disciples, just a moment ago. It is easy to assume you are probably very ashamed of yourself, for here is Jesus, the one who told you he would be risen from the dead, and yet he knows that, that you doubted. He knows you failed him. It would be easy to assume that Thomas sat there with, with shame, with disappointment, with great sorrow, fearful of what this almighty king that stood before him might do in response to the failure of his disciple. And yet, as we continue in the text, we see Thomas is not marked by shame. Thomas is not terrified. Thomas is not embarrassed. No, Thomas is comforted. Thomas has changed. And the comfort, his change, comes not simply in the recognition of what has happened. It comes in his absolute submission to this king. 
Consider this response again in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not yet see, yet believe. Here we see Thomas deeply comforted in a way that would have seemed impossible just a second ago. The comfort he experiences here, of course, is, is a comfort that comes from Jesus Christ, for it is the gift of peace. But incredibly, we see it as more than that. It, it, it is a peace, it is a comfort that is also offered in that glorious tone, the manner in which Jesus Christ approaches this disciple. For again, we can imagine any lesser of a king entering into this room disappointed by the lackluster faith of his disciples, ashamed of these individuals that so quickly failed him. And yet he enters with, with love, with compassion, with understanding. He offers to give Thomas the proof that Thomas had demanded. Did Jesus have to offer that proof? No, of course not. No, Jesus could have simply demanded that Thomas bend the knee right there and bow before him. He could have crushed Thomas. But instead he says, Thomas, look. See for yourself, Thomas. Place your hand here, Thomas. Place your finger here, Thomas. See what you need to see so that you may believe. Jesus speaks to Thomas, not just as an almighty king, but as a father, as a friend. As shocking as this is, it of course falls right in line with the way Jesus speaks so tenderly to all of his children. We see the same tenderness on display when Jesus raises the servant girl from the dead. We see the same tenderness on display so frequently as he speaks to those who are so desperate for his help. And we see it again here with Thomas. And so Thomas understandably responds in, in this word of praise for without having touched his side, without having touched that physical evidence, Thomas has seen enough and he answers, my Lord and my God, Thomas cries out this profession of complete submission. For he knows who Jesus is for the first time. And so he rightly recognizes him, not simply as God, but as my God. Not simply as the master over creation, but my master. The one that I submit to, the one that I find hope in. And in our culture, this cry of submission might not immediately speak to the experience of comfort. But to Thomas, of course, the, the profession of faith and comfort are simultaneous. For Thomas understood that, that if Jesus rose from the dead, if he is in fact God and he is, if he is in fact master and he is, well then that means all of his promises are certain. It means that if, if Jesus says peace, then peace really is here. It means that if Jesus promised that, that he would come back for him, well, then Jesus is going to come back for him. It means that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, that nothing can overcome it, that Thomas' identity is certain for all time. He knows that if Jesus, the king of creation, says all is well, then all is well. And so he finds in that authority of Christ and in his Decision to submit the deepest level of comfort and confidence that can possibly be imagined. And it is a glorious transition for Thomas. 
a miraculous change in Thomas. And again, it is so difficult to imagine just the sheer excitement in the room for those original disciples. What a glorious moment they experienced. And yet, we understand that this is not just a joy for the disciples, is it? For Jesus does not simply speak peace to the disciples living in that moment. Jesus does not simply offer comfort for those disciples in that room. He speaks peace and comfort to every succeeding generation. He speaks peace and comfort to you and to me. And you see this even in the words of Jesus in verse 28 or 29. Where we read, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. How precious it is that in his infinite grace and mercy, Jesus saw to it to speak this blessing not just on those original disciples, but to all disciples that would follow after. How gracious it is to think that that Jesus actually considers your faith and my faith as great, as something to be honored in Scripture, for it comes not as a result of seeing the physical body of Christ, but it comes through through reading the witness of the disciples. It comes to the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts. Jesus Christ, as Hebrews tells us, is a high priest that, that empathizes with us. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our struggles. And so he understands that this is not an easy calling. And yet he blesses it. And we receive that encouragement as believers. In Peter's epistle, 1 Peter He too speaks of of the blessedness of this faith that comes without seeing Jesus Christ physically. In 1 Peter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the exact same comfort of Thomas is that which comforts us today. For just like Thomas, we can take confidence in the fact that if the king of all creation has been raised, just as he had promised, then every other promise he's given us is also certain. Just like Thomas, we can know that that if Jesus Christ says there is peace, then there is peace. We can know that if Jesus Christ has risen, then our faith is not in vain. That nothing we do is in vain. It is all done to his glory. And so we can know regardless of the circumstances that we face that there is great joy and undying hope in the resurrection. And so that is why we celebrate on Easter. Even if we are trapped in our own homes, even if we are facing a global pandemic, we rejoice because Christ still sits enthroned in heaven. Because Christ still will return to save us. Because his glory cannot be overshadowed. It cannot be overcome. And so we celebrate it on Easter. We celebrate it every time we enjoy communion with each other. We celebrate it every time we witness a baptism for that too is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We celebrate his resurrection every time we join as a body of believers. We celebrate it every day because this resurrection defines our entire hope, our entire identity. But we celebrate it only and take comfort in it only when we have submitted to that lordship. It is a comfort only when we have made that decision. 
And so as we close this morning, as we consider what it is we have to celebrate today, I pray truly that this word of Jesus Christ might bring the comfort it is intended to bring. I pray that that all of you who are watching and listening to this are experiencing that peace of Christ even in the midst of that great turmoil that surrounds us. I pray that you might understand the point of John and John chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 when he says, therefore many other signs Jesus performed so that in verse 31 you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you are listening to this this morning or whenever you listen to this, and if you've not yet submitted to that authority of Jesus Christ, I pray you do so. I pray that you might respond in the same way that Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. For Jesus is King. He is the one true authority and he is our only means of hope. And so I pray that you do it even at this moment to see your sin, to see the grim reality that faces you that causes your separation from the Father. Understand that Jesus died taking the the punishment for your sins upon his shoulders, but that he rose again and thereby offers you hope. Unbelievers, submit to that now. Place your faith in him now and be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, and our circumstances are bleak at the moment, Let us remember the authority of our king. Let us hear the comfort that our king offers us. And as we see that authority, as we find that comfort in his loving word, let us daily submit to him. And in so doing, let us find that peace that cannot be shaken. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we love you, God. And we are so humbled that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. It is beyond our understanding how you could possibly love us that much. Jesus, it is beyond our understanding how you could live that perfect life, how you could go to the cross for worthless sinners such as ourselves. And yet you chose to do so to the glory of your Father and for our salvation. And so as we read these words that you exchanged with Thomas this morning, God, I I pray, Jesus Christ, that we too might be quick to find that peace that you offer. Might we find it by submitting to you, our one true king. Jesus, we live in troubling times. And yet we know you are still sovereign. Cause us to hope in that anew. For those brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with doubt this morning, God, might they Might they find new confidence in your word and your promise, God. Might we find the comfort here and might we seek to comfort others, God. And for those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray that you use this pandemic to bring them to their knees so they can for the first time understand how hopeless and helpless they are without you, God. Save them from their sins even at this moment. We love you, God, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.